Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library, and today we're going to travel back in Low Country history to explore the invasion of 1706, when a combined force of nearly a thousand French, Spanish, and Native American warriors sailed into Charleston Harbor with the intention of destroying the English colony of South Carolina. Never heard of this event? Don't worry, you're not alone. In the grand scheme of things, the invasion of 1706 was just a brief episode in the long history of the American colonies, and it really didn't change the course of our destiny. Nevertheless, the failure of this joint French and Spanish military mission marked a significant turning point in the narrative of South Carolina. This colony never came so close to being destroyed as it did in September 1706. And after the failure of that mission, the French and Spanish never again attempted a direct assault on South Carolina soil. To understand why the French and Spanish invaded South Carolina in 1706, we have to backtrack almost 150 years earlier to the earliest European attempts to settle in this area. In 1562, French soldiers established a small settlement named Charles Fort on what is now called Paris Island, South Carolina. The French abandoned Charles Fort a year later, however, and in 1564, the French moved southward and established Fort Caroline in the vicinity of modern Jacksonville, Florida. One year later, in 1565, Spanish forces destroyed Fort Caroline and then established their own new settlement called St. Augustine, which is still there today. In 1566, the Spanish founded the settlement of Santa Elena on Paris Island, actually on top of the earlier Charles Fort. Two decades later, in 1586, Sir Francis Drake of England attacked the Spanish at St. Augustine and destroyed the town. The following year, 1587, Spanish forces withdrew from Santa Elena in South Carolina in an effort to concentrate their efforts at rebuilding St. Augustine. Twenty years after that, in 1607, English adventurers established Jamestown on the shores of Virginia. At this point, both the Spanish and the English had permanent colonies established in Florida and in Virginia, respectively, and an uneasy peace between the neighbors endured for decades. Each of these nations claimed the land between their respective colonies, however, and it was just a matter of time before one of them attempted to settle a claim. In 1663, Charles II of England granted all of the land between Virginia and Spanish Florida to a group of eight men, styled Lords Proprietors of Carolina, and the first permanent English settlement in this new colony, Charlestown, was established in 1670. There was only one problem with this scenario. The Spanish still considered Carolina to be the northern part of Florida, while the English considered their new colony to be the southern frontier of Virginia. Although the two nations signed a peace treaty in 1670 that legitimized the English settlement at Charlestown, the Spanish were secretly determined to destroy the new colony and to push the English back to Virginia. In the autumn of 1686, a small fleet of Spanish vessels sailed north from St. Augustine and pillaged along the coastline of South Carolina. They destroyed a new Scots settlement called Stewarttown near the modern city of Beaufort, and then raided homes and plantations on both Edisto and Wadmala Islands. 
Before the Spanish marauders could reach Charlestown, however, a hurricane swept across the coast and forced the Spanish fleet to retreat back to Florida. In the wake of that attack, the government of South Carolina established a series of watch houses and lookouts on our coastline. The watch house on Sullivan's Island was the most important because it could provide advance warning of any ships attempting to sail into the mouth of Charlestown Harbor by lighting signal fires, one for each approaching enemy vessel. In the meantime, the French were planning an expansion of their colonial holdings in North America. In 1699, French soldiers began settling in Biloxi, and in 1702, they established Mobile. Although the English were technically at peace with both France and Spain at this time, the colonists in Charlestown were convinced that the French would soon expand their claims into the South and attempt to drive the English out of South Carolina. Throughout the 1690s and the early years of the 1700s, the government of South Carolina funded the construction of defensive fortifications made of brick, wood, and earth around the capital city, Charlestown. When Queen Anne of England declared war on Spain in late 1702, the governor of South Carolina, James Moore, organized a preemptive military raid on the Spanish at St. Augustine. Governor Moore's South Carolina warriors, aided by our Native American allies, succeeded in destroying St. Augustine, but they lacked sufficient resources to hold the city, and they were forced to retreat. Returning to Charlestown, Governor Moore and everyone in the colony realized that it was just a matter of time before the Spanish would retaliate with an armed raid against South Carolina. Under our new governor, Nathaniel Johnson, the fortifications of urban Charleston were improved and expanded in 1703, 1704, 1705, and into 1706. During these years, the South Carolina legislature and our lookouts on the coast kept a close watch on what they called our common enemies, the French and the Spaniards, who they believed were plotting the destruction of South Carolina. In fact, that was exactly the case. In 1705, one of the most important leaders of the French colonization efforts, Pierre Lemoyne d'Iberville, convinced his king, Louis XIV, to allow him to lead a French fleet to destroy English settlements in the West Indies and in Carolina, with the aid of Spanish allies in Florida. In the first half of 1706, d'Iberville's fleet of 12 large ships of the French Navy sacked the English settlements on the islands of St. Christopher and Nevis. That summer, the fleet sailed back to France to escape hurricane season, but d'Iberville continued on to Cuba, where he negotiated with the Spanish governor for a joint raid on South Carolina. Spies relayed intelligence that there was a great sickness raging in Charlestown, and the people of South Carolina feared going into their capital city. An attack at this moment would surely catch the population off guard and unable to defend sickly Charlestown. In July 1706, however, Monsieur d'Iberville died suddenly in Havana, and it seemed like the Carolina mission would die with him. At this moment, another Frenchman stepped forward to continue the mission. We know him only as Monsieur Lefebvre, or Le Foubre, as he is called in some sources, and he was the captain of a privateer vessel called Le Soleil, or the Sun. After consulting with the Spanish governor, Monsieur Lefebvre 
recruited four additional French privateers, including Captain Louis Pasquereau and his ship, the Brillant, a large three-masted vessel that would carry the bulk of the land soldiers and invasion equipment. In early August 1706, Monsieur Lefebvre's fleet sailed from Havana to St. Augustine, where they took on more soldiers, including a number of Native Americans who were loyal to the Spanish. They were also joined by a small guillot, or galley, bringing the total number of vessels to six. Here, it is important to note that this invasion force consisted entirely of irregular soldiers. These were not regular members of the French and Spanish armies and navies, but rather volunteers and adventurers lured into a political mission by promises of plunder and glory. Nevertheless, their mission had been sanctioned by the King of France and by the Spanish governor of Cuba, and the privateer vessels were commissioned by state agents for military purposes. Meanwhile, Back in South Carolina, the colonists were living in fear of both their enemy neighbors and the mortal sickness then raging in Charlestown. In 1706, the total population of South Carolina was about 9,000 people, approximately half of whom were enslaved Africans. In urban Charleston, the town's population was approximately 2,000 people, about half of whom were enslaved Africans. In the entire colony, there were approximately 1,200 militiamen, that is, about 1,200 able-bodied white men between the ages of 16 and 60 who were obliged to shoulder a musket and to serve in the provincial militia in times of alarm. The following details of this story come down to us in several anonymous letters written immediately after the conclusion of the 1706 invasion. None of these manuscript letters survive in South Carolina. They were sent to places like Virginia and Boston and then forwarded to London, where they survive today. But they have been transcribed and published for all to read. The names, locations, and other details of this event differ slightly in the various sources, so what follows is my best attempt to reconstruct the timeline and the narrative of this invasion. In August 1706, there was a Dutch privateer sloop called the Flying Horse in Charlestown Harbor. Captain Peter Stuhl, the commander of the Flying Horse, had sailed down from New York to try his luck attacking Spanish vessels leaving St. Augustine. Rumors were circulating that the Spanish in Florida were expecting a vessel from Havana filled with silver to pay the soldiers stationed in St. Augustine. In mid-August, after taking on provisions, Captain Stuhl sailed out of Charlestown Harbor and made his way down the Carolina coastline into enemy territory. At this point, I want to mention that the English colonists of South Carolina used a different calendar from their French and Spanish enemies. The English used a Julian calendar until the year 1752, when they switched to the Gregorian calendar used by everyone else in Europe. Besides marking the beginning of the new year on a different day, March the 25th on the Julian calendar, uh, and January 1st, of course, on the Gregorian calendar, the Julian calendar was also 11 days behind the modern Gregorian calendar. This fact is important because English sources recorded this invasion as taking place in late August 1706, while Spanish and French sources recorded it happening in early September 1706. 
Just off the bar of St. Augustine, Captain Stuhl encountered six French vessels coming out of the harbor. The date was August 21st on the Julian calendar, but to the French and Spanish, it was the first day of September on the Gregorian calendar. Monsieur Lefebvre and his small privateer fleet were just leaving St. Augustine on their way to attack South Carolina. Captain Stuhl found himself suddenly outnumbered and outgunned, so he quickly turned the flying horse northward and tried to flee. Although the French vessels represented a superior force, the unexpected arrival of the flying horse threatened to rob them of the element of surprise. One of the French vessels, the ship Briant, gave chase to the flying horse and closed in on the smaller sloop. A furious sea battle ensued. Captain Stuhl lost two sailors and had another five wounded, but he managed to evade capture and sailed as quickly as he could for Charlestown. The Briant, though a larger vessel, sustained enough damage to lag behind. Over the following two days, the Briant limped northward while the other five vessels chased after Captain Stuhl in the flying horse along the Carolina coastline. Captain Stuhl reached Charlestown Harbor on the afternoon of August 24th, or September 4th, depending on which calendar you want to use. For the sake of simplicity, let's call this Day One, the real beginning of the story of the invasion of 1706. On Day One, the flying horse anchored in Charlestown Harbor, and Captain Stuhl came ashore with urgent news. There he found Lieutenant Colonel William Rett, a prosperous 45-year-old merchant who was also the sole commissioner for the town's fortifications and also speaker of the Commons House of Assembly. Captain Stuhl quickly told Rhett of the French fleet chasing him, and shortly thereafter, the smoke from five signal fires was seen rising from the watchhouse on Sullivan's Island. Rhett immediately dispatched Captain Martin Cock to Sullivan's Island to inquire about the sightings. Cock returned a few hours later, and reported that five of the ships Captain Stuhl had mentioned were then just south of the entrance to the harbor, lying close by the shore of Folly Island. At about 5 p.m., Colonel Rett ordered the town's alarm guns to be fired. Artillery blasts spaced two minutes apart as a signal for neighboring communities to take up arms. Rett then wrote a hurried letter to Governor Nathaniel Johnson with a summary of the news and sent a messenger to deliver it to Silk Hope, the governor's plantation on the east branch of the Cooper River, approximately 25 miles from Charlestown by river and road. Rett then dispatched several other messengers with letters to the various captains of the country militia, ordering them to gather their arms and men and to march their companies to Charlestown as soon as possible. Before sunset that evening, the French ship sailed up from Folly Island and began to study the sandbar at the entrance of the harbor. With the darkness settling in, however, they did not attempt to cross the bar. Instead, they'd settled back to anchor off Folly Island for the night. The next morning, day two, Colonel Rhett sent out a pilot boat to investigate the enemy's movements. The pilot discovered the French vessels anchored near Folly Island and several smaller boats near the south bar at the entrance of the harbor. The French sailors were sounding the bar, trying to find the best route through the maze of shallow sandbars that made it difficult for all ships to pass safely into Charlestown Harbor. Upon hearing this news, the townspeople began preparing for the enemy to be upon them that evening. 
women and children, as well as money and all valuables, were loaded onto wagons and hurried beyond the walls of the town and into the countryside, while men of all ages readied their weapons and prepared for the worst. That afternoon, Major General Thomas Broughton came to town from Mulberry Plantation on the west branch of the Cooper River, approximately 27 miles from Charlestown by river, accompanied by two companies of militia commanded by Captains David Davies and Captain William Canty. Most of the men belonging to Colonel George Logan's troop of horse also arrived. At sunset, these militia units moved inside the walls of Charlestown, and the drawbridge was raised, closing the only passageway in and out of the town. During this and each successive night, the militiamen kept a diligent watch and guarded the perimeter of the small, walled town. At sunrise on day three, the country militia companies marched out of the town gate and established a camp about an eighth of a mile from the town walls, about where the campus of the College of Charleston is today. Because there was still a dangerous sickness raging in the town, this move was meant to protect the health of the militia, who would move into the town walls in case of an emergency. Late in the day, our governor, Nathaniel Johnson, finally arrived in town. After assuming control of the militia and viewing the preparations already made, Governor Johnson began giving the necessary orders to prepare for a defense of the town. As an experienced military leader in the 66th year of his age, Johnson's presence was a great encouragement to the townspeople and to the militia. Meanwhile, throughout the day, French sailors continued to use small boats to sound the bar while the larger French vessels rowed at anchor off Folly Island. An English pilot boat sent out to observe their actions discovered two longboats full of men rounding Cummings Point on Morris Island and then turning into the sound between Morris and James Islands. Near sundown, the South Carolina militia again broke camp and marched back into the fortified town to stand watch through the night. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Charleston Time Machine, and we're talking about the French and Spanish invasion of South Carolina in the late summer of the year 1706. A fleet of enemy ships is trying to get into Charleston Harbor, and all the militiamen in the colony are heading to town to prepare for an assault. Early on the morning of day four, the militia companies commanded by Captains Johnson Lynch and George Hearn marched within a quarter of a mile of Charlestown, ready to march in whenever ordered. Likewise, Captain Jonathan Drake's company from James Island came across the Ashley River and stood ready just outside of the town. Governor Johnson came out early to inspect all the militia forces that were assembled near the town lines and then briefed the militia officers about the most recent intelligence of the enemy's movements. The five French vessels were persisting in their efforts to get over the bar, and now it was just a matter of time before they succeeded. That morning, all of the enemy vessels were seen coming over at the South Bar. The local harbor pilots had thought it impossible for them to get over so easily without offloading some of their weight. But the French fleet had the wind and tide to their advantage, and they passed through the treacherous entrance to the harbor with relative ease. Now there was nothing but a few miles of clear harbor between the invading force and Charlestown. Seeing the enemy ships now within the harbor, 
Governor Johnson called the country militia camped outside the town gate and ordered them to march into town and make ready for a direct assault. Rather than sailing straight up to the town, however, the French vessels stopped abruptly and anchored and stretched out in a line across the harbor. They had drawn close enough to see the town's fortifications, which mounted dozens of cannon, and decided to anchor just out of range of our guns. Meanwhile, another company of country militia, commanded by Captain John Fennick, was on the opposite side of the Cooper River, on the neck of land between the Wando River and the sea, probably meaning Hog Island, where Patriot's Point is today. Captain John Fennick and his company were waiting for passage over to Charlestown. And Governor Johnson, needing all the troops he could get to defend the town, ordered a sloop to go across the river to retrieve these soldiers. During the sloop's return trip, a French galley cut away from the enemy squadron and attempted to intercept it. But the sloop outsailed the enemy galley, and Captain Fennec and his men made it to Charlestown safely. As the French ships were riding at anchor in the middle of Charlestown Harbor, contemplating their next move, the weather began to turn against them. Losing daylight as well, they retreated about five miles from town and anchored their ships near unoccupied Sullivan's Island for the night. As the sun set on the fourth night since the enemy's arrival, the citizens of Charlestown did not rest easily. They felt certain that the French ships would appear before the town's guns at sunrise, and panic was beginning to set in. That evening, Governor Johnson proclaimed martial law in an effort to better control the situation and to ready the colony for imminent battle. To show their strength and numbers to the French and Spanish invaders, the governor ordered that every window in the town was to be illuminated by candles for the duration of the alarm. Early in the morning of day five, that's August 28th or September 8th, if you're keeping track of the calendars, more country militia marched into Charlestown. Captain Jacques Legrand de Lombois and his company of Santee River Huguenots and Captain Seabrook's company from Johns Island. Governor Johnson immediately called a council of war at which the militia leaders decided to outfit a number of vessels in the harbor to either capture or destroy the enemy ships. The Carolina vessels included Captain Spread's galley, the Richard, mounting 16 guns, the Mermaid, a galley with 12 guns, Captain Stuhl's sloop, the Flying Horse, mounting 16 guns, a sloop belonging to Captain Saltus, and a galley called the William, belonging to Captain Kimber. The Council of War resolved that Captain Kimber's ship should be fitted out as a fire ship, that is, packed with explosives and incendiaries, and, if necessary, sailed directly into the enemy fleet to scatter them. All of these vessels were currently unrigged and not ready for sale, however, so much had to be done in a very short period of time. Governor Johnson also commissioned Lieutenant Colonel William Rett to be Vice Admiral of this small Carolina fleet. About noon on day five, the enemy sent a small boat towards the town, carrying a flag of truce, a white flag, and a trumpeter and a messenger. The French envoy landed their boat at a neutral location, but this location is not specified in any surviving source. It was probably Schutt's Folly, that expansive sandy bank about a half mile east of the Charleston waterfront. 
observing the flag of truce, Governor Johnson sent a small galley out to inquire what their intentions were. A French envoy informed the captain of the galley that he wanted to speak directly with the governor of South Carolina. In accordance with the military customs of that day to demonstrate good faith protection, the French envoy boarded the Carolina galley while Captain Lombois boarded the French boat as a temporary hostage. The galley then returned to Charlestown and probably landed at a small beachhead adjacent to Granville Bastion, the southernmost brick fortress along the Charlestown waterfront. The messenger was then conducted into Granville Bastion, which was commanded by Captain George Evans. Captain Evans received the French messenger and ordered him to wait for the governor. After a short while, the messenger was introduced to Governor Johnson and, through an interpreter, delivered his messages. At the order of Monsieur Lefebvre, Admiral of the French ships in the harbor, he had come in the name of Louis XIV, King of France, to demand the surrender of the town and of the country and to make all the citizens prisoners of war. His order was to give one hour for the governor to make an answer. Governor Johnson bristled at this demand. He replied, through an interpreter, that he needed not a quarter of an hour or a minute's time to give an answer. Surely the French could see for themselves that Charlestown was in no condition to be obliged to surrender to anyone. Johnson said he didn't need half a minute to contemplate such an offer, for he knew his duty. By the authority of the great Queen Anne of England, he was entrusted with the government and protection of this place, and he would defend it to the last extremity. The governor told the messenger he didn't think very much of the French fleet in the harbor and bid him to return to his master and go about his business. The Frenchman attempted to plead further with Governor Johnson, but Johnson cut him short and commanded him to be gone immediately. A military guard escorted the envoy back to his boat and sent him back into the harbor and noted that the stranger seemed very much surprised at the strength of the town's fortifications and the number of soldiers. After exchanging with Captain Longbois at the neutral site, the Frenchman returned to deliver the governor's message to Admiral Lefebvre. Well, that's one way the story comes down to us from contemporary documents. Another, more comical version of this parlay was published in 1779 by Alexander Hewitt, who was living in Charleston. In his historical account of the rise and progress of the colonies of South Carolina and Georgia, Hewitt passed on a story that had circulated in the collective memory of colonial Charlestown. In this version, Governor Johnson led the blindfolded French envoy on a walking tour of the town's defenses. At each of the town's corner bastions, the governor removed the blindfold to reveal a powerful fortification filled with cannon and hundreds of well-armed militiamen. What the blindfolded Frenchman did not see, however, was that the governor was sending the same soldiers running ahead of him from bastion to bastion, and thus the thousands of militiamen proudly displayed by the governor were actually but a few hundred men. On the morning of day six, several of the French vessels in the harbor sailed near the neck of land between the Wando River and the sea. Again, this is probably what we call Hog Island today and they landed about 160 men at the site of Mr. Barksdale's plantation. The soldiers began ranging throughout the area, plundering everything in their path, including cattle and chickens, and burning houses as they went. On reaching Colonel Deersley's Creek, that's probably what we call Hobcaw Creek today, 
They burned his plantation and storehouse, as well as a ship belonging to Captain Saltus and a new ship still under construction in the stocks. Across the Cooper River in Charlestown, those watching anxiously could see the smoke rising up from this destruction. Governor Johnson immediately ordered Major Alexander Paris and another officer to detach 100 men to go across the river in one of the Carolina galleys. Just before the vessel got underway, however, the governor and his war council determined that the enemy would have full sight of the galley's approach and plenty of time to make a retreat. Governor Johnson then countermanded his order and postponed the attack until the next morning when the Carolina troops would be able to sneak across the Cooper River under the cover of darkness. At the same time that this attack on what we call today Mount Pleasant was underway, another party of about 40 enemy soldiers and about 20 of their Indian allies had landed on James Island and had already set fire to at least one house. Governor Johnson ordered Captain Drake and his company of James Island militia, which had come to town two days earlier, to hurry back across the Ashley River to engage the enemy. The French in the harbor noticed Captain Drake's approach, however, and fired a signal gun to call back their men. By the time Captain Drake and his men landed on James Island and began to march overland, the enemy was already in retreat. The James Island militia marched diligently toward the enemy, but a number of Indians who had accompanied them from town ran ahead of the Carolina soldiers and wounded several of the retreating enemy. In great disorder, the French, Spanish, and their Indian allies raced back into their boats and hurried to get out of range of the Carolina muskets. After the smoke settled, Captain Drake kept his company on James Island until after sundown to hide their movements from the enemy. Shortly after dark, they sailed or rowed back to Charlestown and came ashore about 10 o'clock. Captain Drake went straight to Governor Johnson to give him an account of the day's action on James Island. About midnight, the governor also received intelligence from the neck of land where Mr. Barksdale lives, perhaps in the area of Hobcaw Creek, that the enemy's soldiers were still plundering in the area of Colonel Deersley's property. Governor Johnson immediately ordered Lieutenant Colonel William Rhett to send 100 men over in one of the galleys and another small vessel. Rhett ordered men from the companies of Captains Canty, Fennec, and perhaps Captain Lynch to go on that mission under the command of Captain Canty and perhaps Fennec. There is some contradiction in the surviving contemporary descriptions of these events. At about 2 o'clock in the morning, they set out from Charlestown. About an hour or two before daybreak on day seven, an enslaved man brought information to town that the enemy had landed about 160 men on Wando Neck and that they had been plundering all night and feasting on the cattle and fowl they killed. Meanwhile, Captain Canty and Captain Fennec had already crossed the Cooper River and landed their troops at Hobcaw Point without being noticed by the French. They left about 10 men to guard their boats and then advanced inland in pursuit of the enemy. Captain Fennec sent two soldiers and 10 nimble Indians ahead to act as scouts. After having marched about five miles, the Carolina soldiers met up with the returning scouts, who reported that they had seen the enemy at Rawler's plantation, that's probably Noah Royer's plantation, about a half mile ahead. Captain Fennec quickly and silently marched his men to the fence around the plantation, where they spread out in order to surround the enemy. 
Realizing their predicament, the French and Spanish soldiers, representing an only a small part of the total force, made a hasty retreat without returning a single shot from the Carolina troops. Captain Fennec's militia pursued the retreating enemy about a half a mile to Mr. Gill's plantation, where they met up with another small party of the enemy. Here, the two enemy parties rallied together to face the Carolina men. The two sides exchanged several volleys of musket fire and disputed the ground for several minutes. Captain Fennec's men raised a chorus of huzzas and rushed the French and Spanish soldiers, who fled in great disarray. Six or seven of the enemy were killed in this action, four were wounded, and two were taken prisoner. One Carolina man was killed, William Adams, formerly of New England. The remainder of the enemy retreated eastward in the direction of Mr. Hatchman's plantation. Captain Fennec's company pursued them about a mile to that plantation, and there discovered the main body of enemy soldiers, about 130 men, drawn up in a line and prepared for battle in the middle of an open pasture of about 150 acres. Joined by Captain Canty's militia, the Carolina men were full of eagerness and desire to engage the French and Spanish troops. They formed their lines and advanced to half-musket shot, before pouring in their volley of lead on the enemy. The French and Spanish held their ground and returned the volley, but upon seeing the Carolina troops running at them, huzzahing with desperate resolution to engage them closer, the enemy soldiers immediately quit the field and fled in great confusion. A creek behind their lines preventing them from escaping easily, however, and several men drowned while trying to get across. The rest begged for quarter and were taken as prisoners of war. In all, about nine of the enemy were killed in this skirmish, about seven wounded, about seven lost in the creek, and about 33 taken prisoner. Later in the day, the Carolina Indians brought in several more prisoners and reported killing several others that they had pursued. The total number of enemy dead was computed at between 30 and 40, while the prisoners of war numbered about 60. Of the 130 to 160 enemy soldiers that had landed on Wando Neck the day before, only about 60 returned to the French ships that day. Meanwhile, back in Charleston, the preparations to outfit the small squadron of Carolina vessels for battle was well underway. The town's shipwrights worked so diligently that at the end of day seven of the invasion, that's August 30th for the English or September 10th for the French and Spanish, the ships, their rigging, their guns, and men were ready for action. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Charleston Time Machine, and we're talking about the French and Spanish invasion of South Carolina in the late summer of the year 1706. The enemy fleet is now within Charleston Harbor, and our colonial militia is preparing for a battle at sea. On the morning of day eight, the small Carolina fleet set sail from the wharves of Charlestown and sailed for the mouth of the harbor where the enemy lay. Vice Admiral Rhett hoisted the Union flag aboard the Crown Galley, mounting 12 guns with 96 men. Six other vessels followed, the Mermaid, a galley belonging to Thomas Carey, the governor of North Carolina, mounting 12 guns, the Richard, a galley commanded by Captain Thomas Spread, mounting 16 guns, six petereros, or swivel guns, and 146 men. Captain Stuhl's privateer sloop, Flying Horse, 
with 8 or 16 guns and 80 men. Captain Kimber's galley, William, outfit as a fire ship, and the sloop Seaflower, commanded by Captain Watson with 100 men. Upon seeing the Carolina ships driving straight towards them, the French ships got under sail as quickly as they could and weighed their anchors. Rather than standing to meet the approaching force, however, the French fleet made a hasty and rather confused retreat over the south bar and out of the harbor. With the wind and tide working in their favor, they managed to stay ahead of the Carolina ships and to get out to open sea. Dirty, rainy September weather was coming on, so the Carolina ships were not able to pursue them. After a brief foray into naval history, Vice Admiral Rhett turned his fleet back into the harbor and anchored before Charlestown. It seemed that the enemy threat vanished as quickly as it had appeared. On day nine of this story, Governor Johnson sent out Captain Watson and the sloop Seaflower to see if any of the enemy ships could be sighted along our coastline. After finding no sign of the French vessels beyond the bar, Captain Watson turned back and discovered more than a dozen enemy soldiers stranded on land in the vicinity of modern Mount Pleasant. After ferrying these prisoners back to Charlestown, Captain Watson informed the governor that he had seen none of the French vessels and supposed that they had left our shores. That evening, the alarm was discharged and martial law officially ended. Just as everyone breathed a sigh of relief, however, a courier brought to Governor Johnson an express letter from John Abraham Mott in what is now Mount Pleasant, informing the governor that an enemy ship had been seen at anchor in Seawee Bay and that a number of its men had landed on the mainland. Johnson and his officers thought it must be the ship that the prisoners had told them about a ship the French and Spanish forces expected, which carried their land general, Monsieur Arbousset, several other officers, and of a force of about 180 to 200 men. It was, in fact, the French ship Briand, which had been disabled in the firefight with Captain Stuhl's sloop two weeks earlier. Since that engagement, the Briand had limped towards Charleston, overshot the harbor, and lost contact with the rest of the French fleet. On the morning of day 10, Governor Johnson ordered Captain John Fennick and his militia company to cross the Cooper River and join up with John Mott's men, and then march overland to meet the enemy at Seawee Bay. At the same time, the governor ordered Captain Saltus's sloop, the Seaflower, and Captain Stuhl's privateer sloop, the Flying Horse, to sail immediately for Seawee Bay and to engage the newly arrived French ship. Colonel William Rhett, who was appointed commander-in-chief of this new expedition, boarded the Seaflower with a number of Carolina soldiers. Colonel James Risby was put in command of the soldiers aboard the Flying Horse and was joined by Captain George Evans and some other volunteer gentlemen soldiers. Both sloops, carrying about 160 Carolina soldiers, sailed over the bar that morning and made for Seawee Bay. Their progress was slowed by calm winds, however, so they were forced to anchor just north of the harbor, near the Isle of Palms, for the night. About that same time, Captain Fennick's company joined up with Mr. Mott and a few other planters and Indians, making about 40 men altogether, and they were marching towards the sea. On the morning of day 11, a small party of scouts informed Captain Fennick and Mr. Mott that about 200 of the enemy were on shore at the plantation of Mr. John Hollybush or Mr. Allen, 
the contemporary sources disagree exactly whose plantation this was. Immediately marching their men in that direction, Captain Finnick and Mr. Mott's small band came upon the enemy at noon in an open field. The French and Spanish soldiers knew that they had superior numbers and thought themselves to be more advantageously posted. Repeating their previous tactics, Captain Finnick's men raised a chorus of huzzas and charged the enemy. After seeing several of their comrades fall to the Carolina musket fire, the rest of the French and Spanish cried out for quarter. About 12 or 14 of the enemy were killed, and Fenwick's men took about 50 or 60 prisoners. Among the French prisoners captured that day was Captain Jean Pascarou, the commander of the French ship Brillant that was then in Seawee Bay, and four other officers. A few more prisoners were brought into Fenwick's camp as the day wore on. Meanwhile, the two sloops commanded by Colonel Rhett got under sail first thing in the morning and continued their journey to Seawee Bay. Between two and three o'clock in the afternoon, the Sea Flower, being about a league ahead of Captain Stuhl's flying horse, suddenly tacked towards Captain Stuhl and signaled for a conference. The crew of the Sea Flower had spotted the French ship riding at anchor in the bay with her yard arms and top masts down. Colonel Rhett joined Colonel Risby on board the flying horse to form a plan of attack. They decided that the flying horse, mounting 16 guns, would take the lead and attack the French vessel from the flank, while the sea flower would attack its bow. The Carolina soldiers and sailors all cheered the plan as they proceeded directly into Siwi Bay to meet the enemy. As they approached the French vessel, the Brillant, still riding at anchor, the enemy struck down its flag, and the crew called out for quarter. Without firing a shot, the French crew, numbering about 80 to 90 men, surrendered themselves as prisoners of war. About 10 o'clock that evening, Mr. Mott, Captain Finnick, and Mr. Barksdale came to town, bringing Captain Pascarou, commander of the captured French ship, the Brillant. They informed the governor that they had battled with the French and Spanish soldier at Allen's plantation at Seawee, where the enemy had landed about 90 men. Upon their landing, the foreigners were attacked by 40 planters with 18 Indians. They had killed seven or eight men, took about 56 prisoners. The rest of the enemy scattered, but the Carolina soldiers intercepted their landing boat, and they hoped the stragglers would soon be killed or captured by our Indian allies. On day 12 of the invasion, the wind being contrary, the two Carolina sloops with their French prize ship were forced to remain in Seawee Bay. Colonel Rhett dispatched Captain John Barnwell, who's a volunteer on board, to go overland with an express for the governor, giving an account of their success. Meanwhile, Captain Fennec loaded all the new French and Spanish prisoners onto small coasting vessels and transported them across the Cooper River from the area that's now Mount Pleasant to Charlestown. At about midnight, John Barnwell arrived in Charlestown and informed Governor Johnson that the French ship commanded by Captain Pascarou, who was already in custody, had been taken the night before without a shot being fired on either side and that they had taken one Monsieur Arbousset, the land general of the enemy expedition, along with several other French officers. The weather improved on day 13, so the sloop Seaflower weighed anchor and sailed out of Seawee Bay. About four hours later, the sloop Flying Horse and the prize ship Brillant 
came under sail and joined up with the Seaflower just off Bull's Island. Later that evening, at nightfall, the three vessels came to anchor before Charlestown Bar, being too dark to attempt to cross over the treacherous bar. On the morning of day 14 of this story, that's September 6th for the English or September 17th for the French and Spanish, the two Carolina sloops and their French prize ship, the Brillant, flying the English colors of Colonel Risby's sloop, sailed over the bar and into Charlestown Harbor. On their arrival, all the cannon in all the town's gun batteries were fired in celebration, and the citizens welcomed the returning Carolina soldiers with loud shouts and huzzas. It was a momentous day in South Carolina history, and probably the loudest party that Charlestown had ever witnessed up to that point. After two weeks of nail-biting tension and outright panic among the civilian population, the colony had been spared the horrors of a bloody siege and had lost only one man in the defense. The South Carolina militia had captured about 330 prisoners, including about 230 French and Spanish soldiers and 90 to 100 of their Indian allies. Governor Johnson pressed the captured officers to pay a ransom of 10,000 pieces of eight for their release and to cover the South Carolina expenses of their invasion. But he did not send them back to St. Augustine or to Havana. Instead, our governor paid Captain Kimber to transport the prisoners to Virginia, where, according to a Carolina agent, they were to be, quote, dispersed among the English fleet so that they may be sent home to England there to be disposed of as Her Majesty Queen Anne shall think fitting. End quote. Reflecting back on this entire episode, the anonymous author of a contemporary description of the invasion used some pretty choice phrases to describe its significance. First, he took notice of our governor, Nathaniel Johnson, whose bravery and conduct was, quote, very remarkable during this whole alarm, who, though near worn out with age and pain, he was, after all, a man of 66 years, forgot nothing of the duty of a great commander, being frequently on horseback at all hours of the night to see his orders executed, and infusing the people resolved not to live out the fate of the province, end quote. After recognizing the bravery and leadership of the militia officers, this anonymous writer turned his praise to the so-called common people of South Carolina, who, quote, setting before their eyes the greatness of their stake, were resolved to bid high for the purchase, and upon occasion showed themselves ready and willing to die in the defense of their country. Also deserving of praise was, of course, Captain Peter Stuhl, commander of the privateer sloop Flying Horse, quote, whose good fortune it was to discover and fight the enemy, and has largely contributed to our preservation, who thereby not only gave us time for our defense, but for want of that ship which he engaged and disabled, broke the designs and measures of the enemy, end quote. Thus, it's important to recognize that were it not for Captain Stuhl literally stumbling into the invasion force as it was sailing out of St. Augustine Harbor and then causing damage to their principal ship, the Brillant, the combined French and Spanish invasion may indeed have succeeded in destroying Charlestown and driving the English out of South Carolina. Finally, I'll conclude this story with another choice phrase from our anonymous 1706 observer, who provided this grave summary of the entire failed invasion of English Carolina. 
And thus, through the providence of Almighty God, the malicious designs of our enemies are defeated, and likewise their fleet, like a second Spanish armada, who, had she succeeded, intended nothing more than the utter ruin and destruction of this flourishing colony. I hope you've enjoyed this journey into the past aboard the Charleston Time Machine. I'll be back on the air next week with more adventures in Low Country history. If you'd like to join me in person for a live presentation at the Charleston County Public Library, check out the library's calendar of events at ccpl.org or visit my blog, charlestontimemachine.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.